it's indefensible at this point, I think, to suggest that, you know, your work is relevant to public health, but you're only going to collect data in males. I mean, it's just, there's not really any good rationale anymore. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. A good chunk of what we know about the human body and brain comes from studying animals, such as mice and rats. Scientists study animals to understand issues like anxiety, drug addiction, depression, cancer, much, much more. There are, of course, questions surrounding this. People might worry about animal testing, how good these animal models really are at modeling the human condition. Those are important questions. But here's another one. What if I told you that most of those studies had been conducted only in male animals? Wouldn't you wonder why? Oddly, many scientists haven't wondered why. They just assumed you studied males because females were variable. They had these things, these hormones. So weird. But who said that? Who said that males were the default in animal studies and why? Here to talk about it is Rebecca Shansky, a neuroscientist at Northeastern University in Boston. Rebecca, thank you so much for making the time for us. I'm very happy to be here. In fields like neuroscience, as I've just mentioned, male animals tend to be studied more often than female animals. Do we know how much more often? What are the percentages of studies that only study males or studies that study both sexes? It's about a five to one ratio um, at this point, where with males being the preferred sex to study. So that would mean about... 80% of studies are males only? Correct. Yeah. And the issue that scientists frequently cite for studying these male animals is that females are seen to be more variable. What does that mean? And why is that? So the reason for that is based on the, um, the rodent estrus cycle, which is sort of like an abbreviated menstrual cycle for female, uh, female rodents. And so the idea here is that every couple of days, hormone levels are high, and then they get low again. And so if you're testing a group of female animals, you, um, you might have some of your animals with high levels of estrogen, and some of your animals with low levels of estrogen, and that might cause your data to, um, to be different depending on which phase of the estrocycle cycle the animals were in. And so the perception based on that um, that information is that you shouldn't study females because it's going to be very complicated um, in your data, whereas males don't have a cycle. And so their data will be um, essentially cleaner. And you mentioned there's these high levels of things like estrogen. Do do rodents have progesterone as well? Do they have that variation? Yeah, so they have progesterone too. So progesterone peaks um, just after the estrogen peak. Um, and then both are low after that. And there's this concern that it will in- introduce this variability in the data. How much variation is there over this cycle? I mean, is it like two times as much estrogen, three times, 50%? It's more, more? like, it's more like four or five uh, times higher. So it is a lot higher. It's a lot higher. Um, but the, the premise that that is going to, you know, be guaranteed to affect your data is one that is not founded. 
in reality. I was, I was going to ask, I mean, do we know what the behavioral effects of these cyclic hormonal variations in females are? So certainly people who have, you know, been brave enough to study females um, have found that the ester cycle can affect um, behavioral outcomes, but it doesn't happen all the time. And the magnitude is certainly nothing like the magnitude of um, variability in hormones itself, right? So if whatever your behavioral outcome measure is, it's not going to be five times greater in animals that have high levels of estrogen versus animals that have low levels of estrogen. Um, it, you know, you can sometimes pull out significant, statistically significant differences, but um, it's not as wildly crazy as you might imagine, given the amount of, um, you know, sort of the magnitude of change in hormone levels. And these behavioral effects, are they things like memory? Are they things like anxiety-like behavior? What what kind of, of differences are there? So you can definitely see estrus-related um, effects in tests of learning and memory, like hippocampal-dependent memory, like um, sort of spatial navigation type tests, or um, associative learning tests like Pavlovian conditioning. Um, in measures that you would, you know, maybe classify as more emotional based tests. Um, in my opinion, there's no clear, there's no clear directionality of the effect of the estrous cycle um, in these tests. And so that to me says that there's no, there's probably not um, a major influence of the estrous cycle in, um, at least in the currently available rodent tests of anxiety or depressive like behavior that we have, um, that if you do end up seeing things that seem to swing one way or the other, according to the ester cycle, that it may actually be due to some other factor that is interacting with, um, with the ester cycle, like the time of day, um, the, you know, sort of parameters of the test that you use itself. So these things are not 100% standardized across labs. So those little things like that can actually make um, sometimes more of a difference than something like hormones. And they can make a difference in both males uh, and females. Now, speaking of males, um, you know, males have testosterone. Does testosterone have a cycle? How much does testosterone vary in male animals? So as far as I know, testosterone does not have a cycle, um, at least one that's as predictable as, um, as the ester cycle is, but definitely testosterone levels can change within, um, an animal, um, depending on the experiences it has. And, um, they can vary from animal to animal at about the same, um, uh, proportion. So about five to one or so, four or five to one, um, depending on the dominant status of the animals. So usually, especially in mice, you house them maybe four animals to a cage. And in males, what they'll do is establish a dominant hierarchy where one emerges as the alpha male and the others are essentially subordinates. And if you measure the testosterone testosterone um, in each of those animals, you'll find that the subordinates usually have much, much lower testosterone than the dominant uh, males. So they have like top of the heap and the top of the heap ones become like these super masculinized mice. Ultra yep. manly. 
I don't know about manly, but definitely they have higher <laughs> testosterone levels. Um, and uh, but we have not really seen a culture of scientific research where we care about that potential influence on our data. Um, and so that that is really the um, you know one of the primary messages of my piece um, is that the ester cycle is seen as this problematic source of variability when we have just as many potentially problematic sources of variability in males that were not considered to be um, a problem with respect to data variability, scientific rigor, um, and the general practice of science. Now, you mentioned that males might have these higher testosterone because they're kind of top of the the heap in this like small little high school that is their cage. Um, and do those differences have known behavioral effects for the for the animals? I mean, it, you know, you mentioned that the hormonal changes in females do have observable behavioral effects. Do these testosterone changes have those as well? So there's definitely research showing that testosterone can affect behavior in male animals. Um, whether or not it's been, um, whether or not the idea that this testosterone that is either a cause or an effect of subordinate versus dominant status directly affects behavior. I'm not, I'm off the top of my head. I'm not sure what's been looked into um, along those lines. You know, my general feeling is people haven't really considered it. Um, so because, you know, the, the papers that showed these, um, these testosterone differences between dominant and subordinate males came out in the 70s. This has been uh, available information for a long time, and it just doesn't seem to be a concern amongst um, neuroscientists in general. Which seems odd to me because I, I know that, for example, we use um, the the con- like the concept of dominant and subordinate to do things like study depressive effects in mice because animals that are frequently ending up in the subordinate position they tend to show more depressive like effects mm-hmm. so you you would have thought that they might they might wonder more... whether testosterone was a part of that whole process yeah um as far as i know it's not the people who study who use a social defeat model for um uh for studying depression related pathways don't look at testosterone. And you mentioned that they don't generally look at this. I mean, are there scientists that are trying to control for hormonal effects in males at all? And if so, how do they do that? So (laughs) what's interesting is the only, I mean, you know, I I don't know all the literature. Um, Where I see control for male, you know, for, um, you know, male gonadal hormones is when you're actually when people are actually doing a sex differences study, and they want to they feel like they have to remove the ovaries of their females. So they say, Oh, well, just even things out and take out the gonads of our males as well. Um, and so that's, to my that's the first thing that's come to my mind in terms of when do we when do we care about controlling for um for testosterone. And that's, that's when I see it the most, um, you know, certainly people like behavioral neuroendocrinologists who are specifically interested in, um, you know, in testosterone 
are going to do testosterone related manipulations, but I don't, that's not really, um, what I am here to talk about. (laughs) Um, you know, this is a question of, you know, from a broad scientific rigor standpoint, do we need to control for hormones in our animals? Um, you know, and my argument is like, well, we've never done it before in males, unless that's specifically what you're studying. And so I think that the same standard should be applied to females as well. Yeah, you mentioned that they will, scientists will overectomize females. Is that just much more common? They just kind of take out the uterus and everything just just for funsies? <laughs> Not for funsies, but um, for presumably control? So they don't, they don't take out the uterus. Um, it's just the ovaries. Um, which are the source of circulating ovarian hormones. And so if you take out the ovaries, the animals will stop having a cycle. Um, but they, and that, you know, makes at least removes the estrocycle problem if you see it as a problem. Um, however, ovariectomizing animals, um, you know, is a major, uh, uh, surgery. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, you're taking out one of the most fundamental, um, you know, chemicals that is there for a reason. And so, um, and so when you, so one thing that happens if you remove the ovaries and you don't do any kind of hormone replacement um, is the animals gain a ton of weight. Um, and so, you know, that's, you know, clear evidence that ovariectomy really disrupts just the basic, um, you know, not just in the brain, but the fundamental physiology of the animal itself. Um, and, it, you know, it also, uh, you're going to see changes in the brain in response to not having estrogen on board. Um, but one thing that a lot of people don't know is that even if you ovariectomize um, a female animal to remove uh, essentially estradiol and progesterone from the blood, the brain can still keep making estrogen locally. Um, and so you can still detect um, levels of um, estrogen in the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and sort of these major brain regions that are important for, um, you know, for mood and um, emotion regulation uh, are still going to keep making estrogen, even if you take out the, the circulating um, hormones. And so what scientists have been kind of concerned about is is this idea that these circulating hormones in females are so variable. And there's this argument that, you know, we study males because the males are somehow less variable. And one of the things mm-hmm. I found interesting, you've published this perspective in science about um, issues associated with this kind of sex bias in um, behavioral studies is what is this argument that males are less variable? Like, what is that based on? Um, it is not based on anything. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not based on anything real. It's, you know, to me, it was, it's based on the fact that we see females as having this extra thing, this extra fluctuating hormones um, that males, you know, in theory don't have. Um, and so therefore all your males are basically just all the same and females are all crazy because they've got hormones. And, you know, when I was thinking about that, and so that, you know, the, 
the data variability question is um, is demonstrably false. By the way, there were a couple of meta analyses that I refer to in the piece showing that that literally examined variability in data collected from um, neuroscience studies in males and females, and there's no difference in the level of variability um, in the data that you collect from either males or females. So the perception that females are more variable or that the data you collect from from a group of females is going to be more variable um, is just false. Um, but given that it's false, but that it is so pervasive in the way we think about, um, uh, you know, we think about studying males and females, one of the, you know, I sort of got to think about where this came from. And what I saw was a parallel in, you know, some pretty outdated stereotypes that, you know, women are emotional and hormonal. And, um, you know, that we're so scattered and crazy. And, and I was like, this, this is like the same thing. I feel like these attitudes are the same. And so I started to um, look into the history of this stereotype that, um, you know, that women are more emotional and hormonal, um, and found through reading some, um, you know, gender psychology, uh, studies, that this was a narrative that was essentially deliberately constructed in the Victorian era by biologists and psychologists who wanted to essentially preserve the patriarchy by saying, okay, we're not really saying that women are an inferior version of, uh, of men, but so, you know, we're going to give you some unique qualities, but all of those qualities make you unfit to lead society. And, um, and these qualities are, you know, sort of complementary to everything that is good about men, like being rational and passionate. And, um, you know, it was all sort of meant to be this, this yin yang, uh, kind of setup. And, you know, and they said, okay, so why are women, um, so emotional and hormonal and scattered? And like, of course, has to do with the reproductive system. So this was essentially, you know, a, a story that was, you know, put out there by, um, you know, by other scientists, um, who, you know, who had a, a goal with this sort of a societal level goal with this, and it has clearly worked. <laughs> um, you know, but I think where we really get into trouble with it from um, a basic science perspective is when it sort of um, puts a, a filter over the way we think about collecting data from female animals. What's interesting to me is that, you know, I, I really appreciate kind of the historical perspective that you brought to this. And, and what's interesting to me about it is that in neuroscience, um, for example, you're a neuroscientist. Neuroscience now is actually a female dominated field of study. There are at least 50% women neuroscientists in the world, though they don't necessarily get promoted and tenure and they're not heads of departments. That's a different, that's a different podcast. Anyway. Right. <laughs> um, but why do you think this idea has persisted even as more and more women have been moving into these fields of study? So, I mean, I don't think that, um, I don't think women are immune to this kind of implicit bias. Um, and, you know, and I, that's true. 
at the, you know, completely human level as well, right? There's been studies showing that women show implicit gender bias against other women when they read, um, you know, uh, resumes and things like that. So um, I don't think that I, you know, I think that the presence of more and more women in neuroscience is, is a good start. Um, and it will help. But I feel like, you know, the problem with implicit bias is people don't always realize that they have it. And I, and I, what I want to do is bring this, um, you know, bring this to the forefront of the conversation to say, you know, why do you, why do you feel like you need to ovary optimize your animal? Like, are you, are you interested in neuroendocrinology or do you just think that this is a problem you need to solve in order to do any kind of neuroscience research in a female animal? And, you know, and I think that if people are honest with themselves, like they don't really want to study neuroendocrinology, they, you know, but they, they see hormones as especially ovarian hormones as a as an extra factor that male animals don't have and that's the the thing that I want to get away from um I you know I want people to view male and female animals uh essentially in parallel as equally informative to the field of neuroscience without trying to um, you know, sort of, what am I trying to say? Without thinking that one is more complicated than the other, um, right? Ovarian hormones, as I said earlier, are a natural, normal part of how the brain functions. Um, and taking that away means that whatever you discover about brain function in females is not going to have the whole story. So, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of where I am with that. And you have been studying sex differences in the brain for years now, um, since I think your first postdoc, is that right? Um, since the first day of grad school. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you really got in it early. Um, I got in early, yes. <laughs> and so one of the things um, I found was really interesting looking through a few of your papers you found some really interesting sex differences in some very fundamental behaviors. Um, so for example, in the way that male and female rats respond to fear. Um, and there are a couple of mm -hmm. papers that we're going to be talking about as we go forward. But first, I wanted to kind of talk about fear conditioning, because the method fear conditioning is in both of these papers that we're going to be talking about. And it's also kind of can be difficult for people who are not in science. Um, so can you, can you talk a little bit about fear conditioning, what it is and how it works? Yeah. So fear conditioning is a way to tap into the way we learn about cues that are associated with something, um, traumatic or stressful. So, um, if you, uh, if you to sort of back up and think about human experiences, if you undergo some kind of traumatic event, your memory for the details of that event can often be really strong, right? You remember where you were, you remember, you know, who you were with, what, um, you know, color the car was that was, you know, nearby. And so what we're doing in the lab with fear conditioning is essentially trying to create those associations um, in animals. And so what the animal experiences is it hears um, at an auditory cue. So usually just a tone, like a 30 second long beep. And when the beep ends, the animal gets a little shock in its feet, um, just it's delivered through the floor. And so what happens next is the animal 
um, learns to associate that that sound with getting shocked. And so even though the sound wasn't stressful or you know wasn't too loud beforehand, it starts to essentially become afraid every time it hears that sound. And for the last you know over half a century, um, most of the research that has been done in fear conditioning was. Um, was done in male animals and the way that we decided or the way that we determined um, whether or not the animal had learned that association was we asked when it hears the tone does it freeze and so the freezing response as the name implies is a complete lack of um, lack of any kind of locomotor activity the animal stands perfectly still you can usually see it breathing but that's about it um, and anytime the animal spends, not freezing is all kind of lumped together and essentially counts as not afraid or didn't learn the association. And what we um, what we found when we were doing a fear conditioning experiment is that um, in some of our animals, when the tone came on, instead of freezing, they started darting around the cage like they were trying to escape. And um, you know, you normally a behavior like that, it's not freezing. So it would go into the not freezing pile of not learning. But if you looked at these animals, you could tell that they were having a response to the tone, they knew what the tone meant, they didn't like it. Um, and they were that was their strategy that they chose to engage in order to respond to the tone. And what we did when we looked at what animals were doing this behavior, we found that it was by and large our female animals. And so this now opened up a new line of inquiry for us trying to understand why and how female animals might engage in a different behavioral strategy than, um, than males do. And, um, and this is an example of where, you know, we had like we, Fear conditioning is a, is used in thousands of labs all over the world, and everyone only looks at freezing. And it seemed like, okay, this is the way fear conditioning works. You know, you do the, the experiment and you measure freezing, the end. And what we're saying now is, actually, there might be some other behaviors that are worth looking at in this paradigm. And, you know, and this, the reason this is only being discovered now is in part because of a lack of research in females. But this can now maybe give us some insight into how different behavioral strategies um, uh, can predict long-term outcomes in terms of, um, you know, sort of whether or not animals go in a, an adaptive or maladaptive direction after experiencing a trauma. Now, so this this paper that you're talking about is is a 2015 paper that you published in eLife, and yep. I I will be honest, this paper completely blew my mind when I read it. <laughs> um, and I, I imagine that many listeners might not understand why I am uh, having a neuroscience style nerd out over here. <laughs> um, but this is because I I did actually do fear conditioning um, tests myself in my um in my postdoc, and. Yeah, we only looked at freezing. It was just kind of assumed that if the animal did not freeze, the animal had not learned the task. Um, so I was wondering if you could kind of explain why it matters that animals are responding to this differently. So it ma do you mean why it matters that males and females are 
responding differently or just why any, any, why, why it's important why to look any at animal more... can respond differently, you know, because we've been looking right. at these animals and saying, Oh, well, if you don't freeze, you didn't learn. Right. Exactly. I mean, so, you know, this is, this is our main way of interpreting whether or not learning happens. And you have an animal that say is darting instead of freezing. And if all you care about is freezing, then you're making an inaccurate interpretation of your data. And that, of course, is something that scientists do not want to do. Um, you know, we want to feel that we're interpreting our data and we're, you know, putting it out into the public by publishing it, that we're actually drawing conclusions that are valid. Um, and so I think from a just a straight scientific standpoint, it's important to to be more careful um, and, and kind of open minded when you look at your data. And, you know, even if it's not telling you what you want it to tell you or what you think it's supposed to be telling you, it, it's when it's when these new things come out where you're like, oh, maybe there's something new here. This is, I think, when you really make progress. Um, and I think in terms of, um, sort of a more, a bigger picture translational standpoint, you know, we want to understand what's going on in rodent brains so that we can help people. And if we're ignoring data that might be meaningful, um, then we're only delaying our ability to develop new treatments for things like PTSD. And if, you know, you showed that you, so you showed that females, kind of do this darting behavior instead of freezing behavior. Does this mean that because females showed a different reaction to the fear conditioning, scientists would say, oh, well, they're not freezing. Were they just assuming that females did not learn the task as well? Yes. Yes. So I think that that would have been the interpretation um, in the past is that the females were not learning it as well. And what what was awesome was that you took this and you saw this effect, this fact that females do not freeze necessarily um, mm -hmm. when you give them fear conditioning. And you actually decided to study this further and you did another study um, that was published also in 2015 in Biological Psychiatry. Um, and you actually mm -hmm. showed sex differences that weren't just behavioral. It, they were actually differences right in their neuroanatomy. Can you talk about that study? Yeah, so that study, so actually the chronological order is, is reversed. So it's actually the biological psychiatry paper that led us to discover darting. Um, and so that paper, we were actually interested in a, a secondary learning phenomenon called extinction. And so the process there is that after you learn an association, um, you know, in terms of just, you know, getting through your, your day after a trauma, you want to be able to not have a fear response to the cues that you associate with the traumatic event. And so what we do for that is we um, essentially present that tone that initially um, the animal learned meant it was going to get shocked. We give, we present the tone 20 times in a row with no shocks. And so then the animal learns something new. It learns, okay, now this tone seems to be um, unpredictive again. And so I'm going to stop um, freezing or darting or whatever its um, fear response of, of choice is. And what we were actually interested in was whether um, animals that were really good at extinction had different um, had different neurons than 
animals that were really bad at extinction. And the rationale for that was that um, people with PTSD are, are pretty bad at extinction. So you can, you know, either within a laboratory setting or just in general, we sort of model the P, the sort of hyper responsivity to, um, to cues in p- people with PTSD as a failure of the neural circuitry that mediates extinction. And so we thought, can we actually see physical differences in the neural circuits between animals that are good um, and uh, bad at extinction. And so we took all these animals, we ran them through fear conditioning and extinction, and then we looked at neurons within the specific um, circuit neurons going from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala. And what we found was that in males, we were able to distinguish the neurons between good and bad extinguishers. Um, And in the females, we couldn't. And what we determined when we went and looked back at the behavior um, in our animals was that males who were good and bad at extinction, they all fear conditioned exactly the same way. So they all learn the, um, they learn the association the same, and then they kind of pulled apart during extinction. But for the females, they were actually different during fear conditioning. And we realized that that's because uh, animals that we had essentially categorized as good extinguishers were actually the darters. Um, and so that's where the darting story ended up coming from. And so the reason now that we think we didn't see any circuit differences in the females is that we were essentially tapping into something completely different in the females compared to what we were tapping into in the males. Right. Um, they weren't necessarily so me, extinguishing. They were just darting. So they, they might have were, still yeah. been having that hyper fear response. Right. Um, and we actually think that darting is maybe um, an adaptive, um, an adaptive response. So the, the females that were the, our good extinguishers, by the time they got through extinction, they were neither freezing nor darting. Um, and so we think that um, darting represents um a essentially an adaptive behavioral switch. Um, so what we normally see with darting is it's not the initial thing the animals do. Once they figure out that the tone means they're going to get shocked, they initially freeze. But after a couple more trials, then they switch to darting. And so we think that this actually reflects something in the females that might mean they are a little bit more um, behaviorally flexible. Um, and that might actually pr- provide some insight into um, a mechanism of resilience that's specific to females. And so if we can figure out what that is, then that might give us um, some, you know, some insight into developing new, you know, finding new treatment targets. And all of this happened just because you, you looked at the females. <laughs> yep, basically, that's it. Is this just fear studies, are there potential fundamental sex differences in many basic animal behavior studies that maybe we just haven't seen before? Um, I think that there's a really good chance that there are. Um, You know, I think most of the behavioral tests that we have, especially in the, um, uh, you know, sort of emotional construct realm of, of behavioral neuroscience, um, you know, they were developed in males, they were developed a long time ago. And at this point, it's sort of predetermined what 
um, what behaviors you're looking for. And so, you know, it, it really takes someone looking at the animal behavior and saying, well, here's something that we're not writing down. Here's something that we haven't, we don't have like a, a, you know, rubric for. And so I think that people are recognizing now that behavior, animal behavior is a lot more diverse than we have previously appreciated. And a lot of that, you know, initial, um, you know, the initial uh, sort of standards that we have are are based on technical limitations, quite frankly, right? So like the vast majority of behavioral data is collected by a person watching a video or watching an animal live and writing down what they see. Um, but now there are more um, automated machine learning based kinds of behavioral analyses that I think are going to in the next, uh, you know, five years, tell us that there are some new behaviors that we should be looking for that um, just haven't been worked into the way we use the current models that we have. Though it could also do the opposite, you know, if if people are designing these computer based behavioral systems to like analyze, you know, where an animal is moving, how much it's moving, um, the way they analyze the data, the way they design the program to do the data collection and analysis, garbage in, garbage out. If you're putting in, <laughs> you know, into your computer analysis that you're only looking for freezing. Right. That's um, all yeah. you're going to so, see. I mean, so that's, so that's, that's why I think actually, so the, um, so that's, um, I'm learning a little bit recently through a collaboration with, um, Bob Data at Harvard, um, that, so that's basically what's called machine vision, where you tell the computer what to look for, but machine learning, you allow the computer to tell you what it sees. And so this is where, so that's so it's sort of an opposite direction. Um, and so, um, Bob has this new program called motion sequencing, um, that essentially takes, uh, an Xbox connect depth camera and collects, uh, data across time, 3D dimensional, sorry, 3D data across time of what an animal is doing in space. And so it can identify what they call these, um, behavioral motifs or syllables. And it can determine what pattern the syllables happen in. And so even things that, you know, we couldn't identify or name with, you know, with our eyes or with the current, um, you know, vocabulary that we have for animal behavior, we may still be able to identify new patterns that are more complicated that can um, give us a little bit more insight into what, um, you know, what the most important features of animal behavior in response to a specific event like a foot shock or predator odor or something like that um, are. Now, based on the differences that you found in the lab um, that other people have studied and also on the historical perspective that you have been looking into, you've recently written a perspective um, published in Science about the need to study both sexes of animals. And we've been talking about all of this variability and the, the fact that scientists study males and it kind of leads to this idea that males are the default. And we've been talking about this with regard to animal studies, um, you know, males and fear conditioning and all that kind of thing. But this mm -hmm. can actually affect humans down the line, right? Uh-huh. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's really, you know, the we're biomedical scientists. Um, you know, we're funded by NIH because NIH believes that the 
um, you know, the knowledge that we're able to, um, you know, to put forward with the money they give us is going to help people and improve public health. And, um, and if that is really only true for men, then that isn't really a very good use of taxpayer money because women pay taxes too. Um, and lest we so, need reminding, women are yeah. slightly more than half of the entire world population. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, we it's it's indefensible at this point, I think, to suggest that, you know, your work is relevant to public health, but you're only going to collect data in males. I mean, it's just, there's not really any good rationale anymore. And I think that the NIH was right to put um, this considering sex as biological variable mandate in place. Yes. So what you're talking about is the 2016, um, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health passed this mandate for research that they fund called sex as a biological variable. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that mandate? What is it supposed to do? So the main goal for um, SABV is to uh, create equity in the data that we collect um, in the sense that, you know, we're saying, I'm a neuroscientist, I'm going to publish papers about the brain, it really should, the data that we publish should represent both uh, brains from males and females. And, but this is, you know, hashtag not all studies because not every study would need to balance. If you're studying, for example, ovarian things, you probably don't need males in your study. If you're studying prostate things, you probably don't need females in your study. Right. This is just yes. for, so, yeah, for so you general. Can, you can, you can, of course, if you are studying something specific to, um, the male or female, um, you know, uh, constitution, then, um, then you can argue that you shouldn't have to study, um, both sexes. Um, so that's, a, those are exceptions, but you know, the vast majority of people just say, I'm studying memory or I'm studying, you know, circuits that, and, you know, micro circuits in the prefrontal cortex. And if, you know, if that's what you're doing, then you really need to study both. And this was passed in 2016. Um, how did people react to it at the time? Was there just kind of this, oh, of course we would do that? Or uh, no, oh. um, no, people didn't want to do it. I mean, obviously, pe- some people, I think, overall, people said it's a good idea. Yes, this is very important. But I don't want to do it because it's going to be too expensive. Um, of course, the main source of complaining was uh, revolved around the idea that ovarian hormones were going to present a problem. Um, and so that is, that is really where the motivation for my piece came from, um, is talking about why we see it as a problem. And what is when it your, actually isn't, sorry. What is your goal? I mean, do you, do you want people to study females as well as males? With, you know, for example, maybe looking at them in different points of their cycle or swabbing um, when we want to check for different um, stages of a hormonal cycle in a female animal, you have to do something called a vaginal swab. Um, do, do you want people to do that? Not if they don't want to. <laughs> All I want people to do is to study both sexes and and ask themselves 
why, if they see the ester cycle as a problem, what, where does that, where does that opinion come from? Um, because if you, we now have the data showing that the ester cycle does not make females more variable than males. Um, we also have data showing that testosterone is different, um, in males, uh, you know, of different social hierarchy, um, statuses. And so if whatever the variability when you were only studying males was, is fine from a scientific rigor standpoint, why is that same level of variability not okay now that you have to study females? So that's where I think the double standard comes in. And that's what I really want people to examine in their own biases about what they think they're going to be able to um to learn from studying females. Um, I think that if you are interested in the astrocycle, by all means, you know, swab away um, and, you know, and do those experiments. But I don't think that it is required in order to learn about the brain when you use female animals. Now, you mentioned there was some resistance um, when SABV um, was mandated back in 2016. Have people been changing the way they do science? It's it's a bit early to see publications because, you know, experiments right. take time, funding takes time, papers take time. But have people made changes in terms of like the grants they're submitting or the experiments they're designing? So definitely people, I think people recognize that they at the very least have to say in their grants that they're going to study both males and females. Um, and I've definitely seen that increase in, um, in the grants that I've reviewed personally. Um, and I think, you know, there are probably some people who are going to say that in their grants. And then once they get the money, go back to studying all males. And, you know, it's going to be up to NIH to determine how much they can enforce, um, you know, the SABV mandate once someone already has received the grant. Um, so I think those are some, you know, sort of logistical questions that we don't have the answers to yet. Um, but some people I know have, you know, really in good faith just said, okay, this is the way the world works now. And I'm going to study both males and females. And I've gotten some really cool data. So, you know, I think people are kind of amazed sometimes that, they get these really interesting sex differences. And, you know, to me, I'm like, well, of course. <laughs> so, um, so I think that, you know, people are coming around. I think that the, um, questions about how to, um, how to conduct peer review in proposals and in papers that include both sexes, um, are, there's still some questions out there, but I think they're getting, things are starting to tighten up a little bit. So I am optimistic. And, all of this talk of sex differences and people finding, you know, sex differences in their data, it kind of gets it an awkward question to me. So clearly there are differences between male and female animal behavior. That is totally obvious. And clearly there are differences between the behavior of people who identify as male or female. But there's also this kind of cultural idea around the concept of the male and female brain, the whole idea, oh, you know, pink brain, blue brain, women are from Venus, men are from Mars. Mm -hmm. And this kind of changes how people want to try and treat people based on these presumed hardwired differences in our brains. Um, how do you, how do you respond to that? How does your 
research on sex differences kind of is is it completely orthogonal to that? Is this an overlapping Venn diagram of issues? So I think so. Yeah, I mean, so there's this concept of neurosexism, which says that you know basically it's an excuse for people to discriminate against women. Usually, that's the direction of the discrimination um, because we can point to sex differences in the brain, and I. I I just don't think, and and that's being used as an argument. Stop doing sex differences research, and um, and I I just think it's it's an it's not a defensible position when there is so much evidence for um, for sex differences in mental illness, in drug efficacy, in you know in physiology, in aging, in you know almost anything you can point to. What you, you know, what, what the people are arguing is that you really cannot point to, or you couldn't like put a male, a brain from a man and a brain from a woman, um, on the table next to each other and be like, oh, which one is which? That's not the point. <laughs> um, you know, like the, 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 um, where sex differences in the brain are really important is in the, you know, the things you can't see with your eyes or even sometimes with an fMRI. Um, I think that, you know, what we're discovering in male and female animals is that there are really nuanced differences um, in the, you know, especially if you just want to talk about the behavioral level stuff and behavioral strategies that each, um, you know, that each animal might uh, choose to engage in depending on the, the situation that it's in. In um, in the mechanisms, even if behavior is identical, what you still might find is that there's a difference in um, you know in the neural circuitry that is involved in the um, neuronal signaling that's involved. So I think you know we still need to know the answer. If the ultimate goal is to you know help sick people not be sick anymore, we need to understand how the drugs that we give them work. Um, and that might be different in, um, in males and females. And so I think we have to be able to study both sexes and, you know, and know what those differences are. Well, and I think a lot of that kind of comes down to just because something is different does not mean it is deviant. The idea that right men are a default and mm-hmm. women are different from that default. The idea that one or the other of the sexes must be the default to which we compare things. It must be the normal to which we find significant differences, which is not, not a good way necessarily to look at the world. Right. No, I mean, that's really the, the problematic thinking. And that gets back to these Victorian era narratives where it was like the man was the default and a woman, the, um, the deviation from that default. And that's how I fear people are viewing male and female animals. And that's really what I the um, the sort of line of thinking I want to get away from in the way that we design experiments. Um, you know, we don't even have to necessarily look for sex differences or call it sex differences, but just like know what is true in males and what is true in females. And, you know, and half the time now when we do our studies, I don't even do the analysis to say whether or not males and females are different. 
I just want to know what happens in each one. And that's the important piece of information I want to put out into the world. Now, our podcast listeners are a pretty science-savvy bunch. Um, mm-hmm. They read a lot of scientific papers. They read coverage of scientific papers. Do you have any advice for them? What should we keep an eye out for when reading about behavioral studies and sex differences? Are there are there things that we should watch for? Um, so what I would like to see change is the use of words that um, suggest that males or females are better or worse at a specific task, um, right? And so to get away from, you know, concepts like impaired, um, things like that, when we're really just saying, like, this is the, the level that the females reached, and this is the levels that the males reached. Um, so I think that we should look to change the language a little bit and the way that we describe um, the data that we collect from males and females and, you know, and see whether or not, is it really important if males and females are different or is it just important to understand both, um, at the same level? Well, Rebecca, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. (laughs) Thank you. This was really fun. If you'd like to learn more about Rebecca Shansky and her work, we have linked to the studies that we referenced in this episode at scienceforthepeople.ca. They are all open access, so get your nerd on. And while you're at our website, go ahead and follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, hang out with us weekly and subscribe, leave a review on your podcast app and tell us why you like us. And if you are so inclined, maybe kick us a few bucks in your home currency every month. It helps keep us bringing you scientific interviews just like this one. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes. And we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 